You're listening to Oh My Pod with George Takei and Todd Beaton. With every Facebook like, with every online quiz you answer, do you know the personal information you are divulging? Do you know where your data goes and what your online behavior says about you, not only as a consumer, but as a voter? Data mining companies do, and likely, so does the Trump campaign. On this episode of Oh My Pod, we're going to deep dive into the ways that online tools are being exploited and weaponized here in the United States to change our hearts and minds and impact our elections. If you think you're in full control of the news and information you consume, and of the opinions you form, get ready for a wild, unsettling ride. Welcome to Oh My Pod. Hi, George. Good to see you as always. You too. Looking forward to another enlightening discussion this week as we continue to explore the hacking of our elections. That's right. Russia was not the only culprit. There was also a company called Cambridge Analytica based in the UK, which used the very Facebook data we freely give every day to target us with disinformation. It's almost more insidious than what Russia did. Yeah, they did it all on the behalf of their client, the Trump campaign. So, George, when we hit like, when we hit share, we are giving data out. Exactly. Every little activity we do online, right, is is sending a message and is building our profile for someone. Who, who wants to sell us things or persuade us to make this decision as opposed to that. Take a trip to uh, Guatemala as opposed to uh, Norway. <laughs> But little did we know that it actually was also being used to target us with disinformation to convince us to vote certain way. Exactly. Marketers want you to buy certain things um, that they're selling. And an election is, is essentially that on a higher and more uh, significant, substantial plane. But nevertheless, they're marketing. They're selling this candidate, this idea, this bill or this project. And it used to be that we trusted that information, right? If Even if it was micro-targeted to us. Because we knew where it was coming from. But now we can't. No, we don't. And that's where the nefarious uh, activity happens. Because people who want to be anonymous are... Yep. And Cambridge Analytica did this uh, around the world. They did it with Brexit. And Cambridge Analytica said, you know what? This, this is working. We're going to take this to the United States. And they had their candidate, Trump, and they worked their magic not only to promote Trump but actually to suppress the vote for Hillary. So today we're going to speak to Brittany Kaiser who is head of business development at Cambridge Analytica and she has since become a whistleblower turning over everything she knows to investigators. Brittany talks about how they weaponized our data against us, right? to elect Donald Trump. She talks about how they develop a, a personality profile of every U.S. voter, and they determine which voters are persuadable 
they use the personality profiles to figure out who they need to target. And also they use it where they need to target. They knew the states that were going to flip this thing in 16. Does Brittany have a warning for us about 2020? Yes, as she told me in our interview. What Russia did in the 2016 election, they only spent a couple hundred thousand dollars. Yes, they reached over 127 million Americans with disinformation in some of the physical events that they were able to organize on Facebook ended in violence, and that's what they meant to do. But the biggest threat to our democracy is not foreign, but domestic. And it turns out, while Cambridge Analytica is shut down, the Trump campaign continues to employ some of the same people and tactics today. And our second guest, he's uncovered other ways the Trump campaign is exploiting online tools to spread disinformation. That's right. Judd Legum of the newsletter Popular Information has been doing outstanding work exposing all the ways the Trump campaign is, in their own way, hacking the election through a campaign of disinformation. Whether it's Facebook's rule that politicians' ads will not be fact-checked. So they can lie with impunity. Twitter has actually banned the politicians from purchasing ads on its platform. Good for them. Hopefully, Facebook learns a thing or two. Let's hope so. Well, I'll let you get to it. Thanks, George. But first, we have a quick message about our sponsors. You're listening to Oh My Pod. I'm now speaking with Brittany Kaiser, former head of business development for Cambridge Analytica, featured in the documentary The Great Hack, and she just released her new book, Targeted. Welcome, Brittany. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Thanks for coming in. Can you give the listeners who may not be aware a brief overview of what Cambridge Analytica did in 2016 to help Donald Trump win? Of course. So Cambridge Analytica was the back-end data machine for both the Trump campaign and the Trump super PAC. So from starting out and building the Trump campaign's database all the way through political polling and modeling of every voter in the United States, what issues everybody cared about, how likely they were to vote, whether or not they were a more likely Trump or Clinton supporter, and then using that data in order to put together over a million different advertisements and over 10,000 different campaigns that micro-targeted people and either brought them to the polls or not. And you joined them what year? In 2014. And by that point, they boasted of how many data points on how many Americans? 2,000 to 5,000 data points on basically everybody above the age of 18, so about 240 million Americans. Wow. And... Can you explain how Cambridge got all that data, which Facebook still claims was not a data breach? Is that right? (laughs) Well, they make quite a lot of excuses these days, don't they? (laughs) So where that data comes from is something that the average American or even average person doesn't realize is the amount of data that actually exists about you and the amount of companies that solely exist to buy and collect data about you and sell it on to other people. So Cambridge Analytica started building this database from a company you've probably heard of called Experian. So Experian uh, and Equifax are two of the main companies you've probably heard of that tell you how much money you're going to have to pay every month on your mortgage. But those companies only can make those types of modeled scores, which is your credit score, because they have so much data about things you've actually done. 
So everything from your basic demographic information, first name, last name, uh, address, everything you've ever bought or sold, everything you've ever read, where you go on vacation, where you went to school, wow, your daily activities, even your location data. And we're giving this to them in a way, right? We create so much data every day and we do not realize it. Yes, we are complicit in creating that data and not reading terms and conditions. We sign contracts every day without reading them, and therefore we're giving away significant amounts of data that companies like Experian make tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars off of selling to people every year. So originally in 2013, 2014, when Cambridge Analytica was first being set up, there was an app that was built called This Is Your Digital Life. At the time, Facebook had this program where anybody that wanted to pay to be a developer would get access to all of their users' data through the infamous Friends API. So this allowed a developer to build an app, and anybody that consented to use that app, whether it was Farmville or This Is Your Digital Life, you know, there's all types of games and quizzes, what's your favorite Disney princess, what country should you really be living in, You've probably seen those, yes. or at least at least your mom played them. <laughs> and that gave the developer of that app access to all of your data, but not just your data that you consented to, to everybody else in your friend's network as well. So no, I never played Farmville or took any of these quizzes, but my mother certainly did. So therefore, my data and any of my other friends that she had become friends with were therefore uh, breached. Yeah. And so when you say they had between two and 5,000 data points. Mm-hmm. What are some of the data points that they would have? So they might have, for instance, everywhere you've ever lived. They probably have how much money you normally spend on your credit card on what types of items in what stores. Okay. They might have where you travel to, so the locations that you spend money. They probably have what periodicals you subscribe to or what you might often look at online, what types of subscriptions you have. Uh, It's kind of endless in terms of your financial data and spending history, your lifestyle data, as they call it. So the types of choices that you're making every day, even if they're not financial. Everything you do produces data these days because you have uh, spyware in your pocket. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We're walking around with it, right? Right. A lot of the Facebook data was considered as a data sample that they used for modeling. So in the This Is Your Digital Life app, they would ask questions like, do you believe in art? Do you get along well with children? Do you see yourself as a leader in society? And it's these types of what they call psychographic questions that are supposed to probe your personality Mm -hmm. and the way that you see the world around you, the way that you interact with everybody. And so they will correlate your answers to those questions with the rest of your data on Facebook. So perhaps people who really like art also have liked Barack Obama and are environmentalists and et cetera and so forth. And that helps uh, a data scientist put you or anybody else in the voting population into certain categories. And so how were people then divided? Not everybody in the U.S. American electorate was targeted, and not everybody was targeted equally. So if you are a very staunch believer in either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, you are unlikely to be persuaded one way or the other. Um, If you are very likely to vote and you've always voted, there's no way anyone's going to stop you. And if you've never voted before, 
even though you've had the opportunity and people have begged you to, then you're probably not going to register to vote or show up, show up to the polls. So if you are anywhere in the middle mm-hmm. between being a staunch supporter of Clinton or Trump, and if you're anywhere in the middle from being a definite voter to a definite non-voter, then you are considered a persuadable. At what point did they go from data collection to then disinformation campaign to target those people? So people fell into very many different categories as they normally do. But if you were a persuadable on one side or the other of candidate preference, Mm -hmm. it's very possible that if you were close to liking Trump, that if you were targeted with information about his policies or information about how amazing he is, whether it be true or not true, that you could be persuaded to become one of his supporters. Now, if you were closer to the side of being a Clinton supporter— And it was possible not to turn you into a Trump supporter, but to turn you into a Mm non-voter. That's where the disinformation came into play. Uh, I I saw this in a two-day-long breakdown about a month after the election when all of my colleagues that had worked on the Trump campaign and had worked on the Trump super PAC showed me an eight-hour-long presentation what they had done. So I didn't actually work directly on the campaigns. I was doing other things in the company. And they showed me... Everything from ads that misquoted Michelle Obama, making it look like she had defamed Hillary Clinton, um, all the way to old misquotes from Hillary Clinton when she was a lot younger, made to target African Americans and make her think that she didn't believe in them, right? So there were so many different sectors of different messaging campaigns that used racism or sexism or misinformation or even, in my opinion, incitement of violence to use to use this kind of fear and insecurity amongst voters that are persuadable to convince them not to vote. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say that just out of a conclusion after seeing the messaging alone. I'm saying that because they showed us how they measured their success. And they measured their success in decrease in intent to vote for Hillary Clinton. That, I mean, let that sink in for a second. I feel like we always think about uh, disinformation or being targeted with ads to convince you to vote for someone. Mm -hmm. This turned that upside down. Totally. I mean, that's why I called my book Targeted. And I really go into detail in there on all of the different types of messaging and how to some people it might seem innocuous. But when you look at the full strategy behind it, and why people were sent these types of messages, Mm -hmm. you can see that this is the intent to suppress the vote. Mm -hmm. It absolutely is. There's nothing else that it could possibly be. Brittany, can you talk a little bit about what Cambridge did uh, related to what Russia did in 2016? Right. So I get asked this quite often, as you might imagine, and I keep on hammering home the point that what Russia did in the 2016 election They only spent a couple hundred thousand dollars. Yes, they reached over 127 million Americans with disinformation and some of the physical events that they were able to organize on Facebook ended in violence, and that's what they meant to do. So that's obviously a threat to our democracy, of course. But the biggest threat to our democracy is not foreign, but domestic. Donald Trump spent over $600 million on his campaign and has been spending a million dollars a day these days, some of which is going specifically 
to disinformation and hatred in his messaging. So especially with Facebook being complicit in allowing anything that President Trump wants to say to be able to be sent to over a billion people instantly, I would be very sad if people got distracted by Ukraine and Russia and were in any way confused as to where the biggest threat is coming from. It's coming from the White House. So the great hack is really interesting as a documentary because it follows you and your journey. At what point did you start to feel like you had done something wrong and you needed to sort of make up for it? I began to feel that something was very wrong while my company got involved in the Trump campaign. And it wasn't until the month after the election when we had that two-day-long debrief and I saw everything that went on during the campaign and the super PAC when I thought, huh, there's something very, very wrong here and I need to find a way to make a change. What are the steps you've taken since then? How have you blown the whistle? Right. I've spent the past year and a half going through over 100,000 documents and I've gone over these with investigators, both foreign and domestic. I've been involved in at least 10 investigations, um, it, both in the U.S. And, and a similar number abroad, trying to figure out, one, like what are the basic loopholes that exist in our legislative and regulatory frameworks? Like, why, why is this possible? Because a lot of the activity that went on is legal. Not all of it was, but a lot of it actually is, and, and that's a fundamental issue. Second, what about our election laws allowed this to happen? The fact that data can be used in this way, the fact that people can be targeted in some of these ways is a fundamental problem in our electoral system. Mm -hmm. And then third, people are fully unaware that most of this is going on. We all live in totally separate realities. Mm -hmm. What you see on your newsfeed is separate to what I see on my newsfeed. So what are the fundamental issues on social media platforms and the way that our data is used to target us fundamentally on a daily basis that feed into all of these issues. And, uh, you know, that that's really a little bit of an issue on digital literacy. A lot of people don't realize that what they're seeing is targeted content, that their data is being used to show them something totally different than their neighbor, and that they live in, in this with this tunnel vision, only seeing things that they want to see, only seeing opinions uh, that are similar to theirs. Mm -hmm. and it's self-reinforcing. Re and it really is connected to the sort of the death of local news too because now 44% of Americans get their news from Facebook. Yes. And I would also say that's another fundamental problem yeah. is thinking that self-publishers are the same as mm -hmm. real news organizations with journalists that live by standards that actually have corroborated sources that cannot have slanderous or libelous information. Uh, they, they can't engage in disinformation. You know, if, if even a small percentage of what individuals are allowed to post to Facebook was posted in the New York Times, everybody from the New York Times would be in jail. <laughs> mm -hmm. that, that's just not how that works. Everything is verified, yeah. whether the White House says so or not. So education of people about what social media actually is and that we're not 
we're not obtaining news from sources that you can implicitly trust is something that, you know, we're, we're just not there yet, unfortunately. Facebook seems to want to have it both ways. They consider themselves, oh, just a platform, but they're also targeting things specifically to people. Right. You know, they're, they're just a platform, but, you know, the, the FCC has rules about what, what we would say on, on the radio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so exactly. why, why don't they have rules about what can be said on Facebook? And, you know, I'm not saying there are no rules. You and I on Facebook cannot say the same things that Donald Trump can. Mm-hmm. We are held to community standards, mm-hmm. but somehow politicians are not. That's the shocking part. I can be banned, but Donald can't. That's a really good point. People who you worked with at Cambridge are still right now with the Trump campaign. They're working for and with Brad Parscale, who is the Trump campaign manager, right? And they started working with Brad in 2016, uh, in June 2016, many months before most people were aware that Cambridge Analytica was there. And no matter how much Brad Parscale likes to downplay Cambridge Analytica's role, I know for a fact the amount of staff members that our company had sitting in San Antonio in his office. I know what they were doing every day. They showed me all of their metrics and case studies. Uh, I heard it from other people in the Trump campaign themselves during the time. I know how effective they were. I know how much work they did. And they've been working for and with Brad ever since. So if he says that Cambridge Analytica wasn't a big part of the campaign, why did he continue to work with and hire so many people that were my former employees and colleagues? So what is the state of play right now for 2020 as far as what Cambridge Analytica did in 2016? That company is shut down officially, but are we safe? I would be absolutely terrified. for what we're going to see over the next year, if I didn't feel the amount of momentum that we have uh, from not just people in Congress, but uh, individuals, I think people are more skeptical about what they see on their Facebook news feed. I think that Congress has introduced quite a few different pieces of legislation that can prevent a lot of the issues that we saw in 2016. But, you know, that that underlying knowledge that at least the Democrats uh, as well as anybody else besides the Republican Party are very, very far behind what the Trump campaign has been doing since November 2016. Literally, right after November 2016, there were already super PACs being set up to support the administration, to support Trump, to support Trump administration policy and anything that they were doing, those super PACs have continued to work, continued to have money flow through them. And we know that even now there's a minimum of a million dollars a day being spent on digital operations. There's the Trump campaign spend, Mm -hmm. but we're not thinking about all the 501c3s and c4s, you know, not just PACs and super PACs, but issue groups that are supporting the current dialogue coming out of the White House, if you could call it that. Um, And so that That's incredibly concerning for a number of reasons. One, me coming from Cambridge Analytica, I know how much a database learns as you go on. So if they still have all the data that they originally collected for Project Alamo, and they've just been feeding data into that ever since then, ever since summer 2016, 
well, they're they're more far ahead than anybody else that's fighting against them will be. That's for sure. I I know that Hillary Clinton's campaign put out just over fifty thousand adverts versus the Trump campaign's over a million. That's micro targeting to an extent where. You know, I wouldn't suggest that the Democrats try to keep up with that, but I would say there is a huge difference with the types of messaging that an individual will see. If it is so incredibly targeted at you, it obviously will work better than, you know, more blanket campaigns. And the amount of money that they've had to fuel into that, the more data that they've been able to collect since then, I, I would really struggle to see a way for a Democratic candidate to defeat that. Wow. Because you wrote, I'm going to quote you here, Democrats believe that they can defeat Trump on policies alone, but the truth is that Trump and Facebook will make that impossible, especially because Facebook's algorithms tend to favor the kinds of extreme disinformation that Trump's campaign traffics in. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's been proven time and time again Uh with scientific and academic testing that news feeds favor hate mm -hmm. and fear and violence through imagery, uh, videos, messaging. All of that goes to the top of your feed first. It's all negative, not positive. That's the problem. Negativity gets more clicks. Negativity goes viral. And it's also what drives and fuels Trump. It's a perfect storm. So what is your advice to Facebook users when it comes to combating this? I'm an eternal optimist, despite what you might think, <laughs> given the fact that I say I'm terrified for what's going to happen between now and November 2020. I want to tell everybody that you have agency. So if you're talking about the way that you use Facebook, you can go into Facebook. One, you can download and delete your data so that you are no longer targetable by the same data that you have always been targeted by. You can go in and change your preferences so that you don't see certain types of advertising. Mm -hmm. Every time you see something that you don't like, uh, you know, if it's Trump talking about the southern border wall and the fake emergency, you can report those advertisements and you can say why you're reporting it. And I would suggest that you do that every single time. You should... Every time you see an article that has been shared, before you share it with someone else, do yourself a favor and actually research if it's true. Double check your own sources because you don't know what's being shown to you. You're not sure what's disinformation or not since Mark has decided that anything goes. So be your own fact checker mm -hmm. and you know do yourself a service. And before you share anything, make sure that it is legitimate. I think that's very important. But... What I would say in terms of empowering yourself, and I say this in my book over and over again, call your legislators. It's really easy. If you don't feel comfortable talking to them, you can leave them a message. You can write an email. I've met with some legislators that say, hey, I would love to sponsor this bill, but none of my constituents have complained about data protection. Oh, interesting. Okay, well... Guys, hello, I have millions of people that react to my articles and social media posts and everything, you know, on a daily or weekly basis. Why aren't you guys actually calling your legislators? It's so easy. Tell them that you care. Tell them that you don't want your data to be abused in the same way that it was in the last election and that you want them to support 
new upcoming laws. Uh, there's a lot of really good ones that are out there, actually, that can protect us and could be passed in time to make a difference. But if you guys don't call, they work for you. So if you don't ask them, they're not going to do the things that they should be doing. Some legislators are supporting this outright, but some of them need to be told to do so. Well, Mitch McConnell is suppressing the election integrity bill that the House passed. Yeah. So he needs some phone calls. Yeah, exactly. It's really easy. Uh, Go online. You can figure out who all your legislators are right to Every single one of them, you can send them the same blanket email. If it's only one line, it doesn't matter, but do it. It does really make a difference. And the other thing is, remember, November 2020 is not just a vote for president. It's a vote all up and down the ticket. So figure out who stands for what, who cares about our elections integrity, who's trying to protect our democracy, who's trying to protect our data, which is the most valuable asset in the world You are producing every single day the world's most valuable asset and you are not being rewarded for that. You are being abused by that. So tell your legislators that you care about that. And it's possible that in the next couple of years, we will see a very different digital landscape than we do today. It's a good reminder. All right. Well, thank you so much, Brittany. I appreciate your coming in. Thank you, Todd. Coming up. Todd speaks with Judd Legum, founder of the political newsletter Popular Information. But first, a quick message about our sponsors. I'm now speaking with Judd Legum, founder of the Popular Information newsletter, which you can sign up for and read online at popular.info. Welcome, Judd. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We are faithful readers of popular information here at Team 2K. Oh, well, thank you so much. (laughs) You've been making quite a bit of news lately. So what inspired you to start the newsletter? Well, to be honest, I really wanted to go back and just focus on writing uh, and reporting. I'd been doing a lot of editing, um, but also saw the need to really apply some scrutiny to the big centers uh, of power that is shaping politics in the United States and around the world. And you can't look at a group like that without looking at uh, Facebook, and the other large tech companies in the United States. A few weeks ago, you broke the news that Facebook policy was that politicians' Facebook ads would not be fact-checked. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you came to discover that? Yeah, it actually was the product of months and months of reporting. Facebook started this ad transparency library, which is a big improvement from what we had in 2016. Because in 2016, When you put ads on Facebook, no one knew what you were doing. There was no way, unless you happened to be targeted by that ad, for you to find out what politicians were putting, were advertising on Facebook. So in response to criticism, Facebook changed that. There's now an ad library. Anyone can go look at it, and you can type in Trump or Biden or Warren or whoever and see what they're doing, and not just politicians, anyone who's doing any kind of political advertising. Got it. Uh, so I started paying really close attention to what was going on in the Trump campaign, because they're very active. And it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, sometimes thousands of ads every day. Uh, and the library isn't that user-friendly, so you just kind of have to scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll. And then as I was doing that, every few weeks, I would notice things uh, that were inaccurate. And, you know, everything from, you know, ads 
claiming that the Democrats were proposing to repeal the Second Amendment uh, is, a, is one that show, showed up wow. uh, a lot. Uh, advertisements that said that people who are um, brought in for asylum aren't vetted. Uh, wow. which is not true. <laughs> Actually, there's like a many, many step process mm-hmm. uh, for people who, who are, who are get asylum. So just those two things that were just flatly wrong. And so I would send them to Facebook and say, Hey, doesn't this violate section 13 of your policy, which very clearly stated you couldn't have anything false or misleading in any ad. And they would never get back to me. They would get back to me, even other types of violations. They were referring to people by, gender. You can't refer people by characteristics. So they'd get back to me about other kinds of violations, Mm. but they wouldn't get back to me about this. I would report on it anyway. I'd put it out in my newsletter. But then this fall, uh, they finally did respond when I highlighted an ad. It was a video ad about Biden and they did respond. And I actually was thinking this was just going to be another case of Facebook allowing the Trump campaign to violate its own rules. But they responded and said, no, actually, this isn't against our rules because we don't fact check politicians. I was like, huh, that's interesting. Uh, and I put it out the next day, I think under the headline, like Facebook says Trump can lie in ads, which is what they were telling me. Yeah. And uh, it became a, a pretty big deal. No, it totally blew up. Yeah. Obviously, Mark Zuckerberg was called in front of Congress, right? What he was trying to say was that if you had an ad that said election day was on the wrong day, that would be fact checked. But if you said Republicans voted for the Green New Deal, that wouldn't. Yes. I mean, I think this is where it begins to break down. Right. right? Because they do have a rule, which Zuckerberg said, and I was told this by Facebook as well, that they have a rule against voter suppression. Okay. Part of this is due to the fact that they got a lot of criticism for running voters mm-hmm. ads that were intended to suppress voters the last time around. So if you put an ad with the wrong date, we will fact check that, I suppose, or they'll take it down. Uh, but that's where the whole thing breaks down, because what's the best way to discourage someone to vote? Flood them with, with misinformation. You know? Tell them that, you know, X candidate uh, really is against your interests and did all of these things that may or may not be true, and that can suppress votes too. So the idea that you're drawing a distinction between right. misinformation on the one hand and voter suppression on the other, it doesn't really hold up the scrutiny. And I think that's why that's where Zuckerberg got tripped up because there really is no way to explain it in a way that makes a lot of sense. And as far as non-politicians, like PACs, political groups, if they want to f- – Game mm-hmm. Facebook with misinformation, are I mean those are fair game for for fact checking. What's the, what's the policy there with other political ads? Yes, uh, it, what I understand from Facebook is politicians, candidates can run ads uh, that include lies, mm-hmm. and and the parties themselves, like the Democrat and Republican parties, they haven't done a lot of ads yet, but theoretically they would be covered by the policy, Got is it. what I've been told. But PACs, other political groups, will be fact checked. Okay. Um, now, it's unclear to me when they say that if there's anyone really fact-checking the ads. Oh, because, for instance, okay. I flagged um, 
an ad. It was from a group called the Committee to Defend the President. And it included a quote from Obama, Obama's voice with Obama, where he appears to be talking about how the Democratic Party has taken the votes of African-Americans for granted. Wow. Uh, but actually, what it was, was Obama reading his autobiography on the audiobook, oh, And he was actually reading the words of someone else uh -huh. who he did not agree with. But it was quoted in his book. But they make it seem like it, it was a barber named Smitty. So they were, but they were making it seem like Obama said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like it was, and, the context was like two people, you know, twice removed yeah. so it was a clearly false ad but it still was approved and ran so i i think that it's all algorithmic their review of these ads before i don't think they have human reviewers on any of the ads including ads that are not by political candidates so i just don't think they're set up to catch errors period okay. i think what they'll what they're basically saying is if someone else does this work yeah we will then retroactively take it down. But a lot of the times, um, damage, yeah, is, the done. damage is done, right? Cause this ad was really scheduled to run for one day mm -hmm. and I caught it halfway through the day. I actually sent it over to PolitiFact, uh, and they looked at it again and ruled it false officially. Uh, but by that time the ad was already down, you know? So, wow. so it's, uh, they're not really set up to, to catch people. So since 2016, you've talked about some innovations Facebook has taken, um, to improve the level of information that is sent out to people in 2020, leading up to the 2020 election. What else should they be doing? Well, I think that they should fact check the ads mm -hmm. or at least subject them to fact checking. Uh, I understand maybe they wouldn't catch every single one, but as of now, even if one of their third party partners fact checks it or someone else catches an error, or something that's blatantly wrong, they won't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. um, and and I also think it it sends the wrong message because it essentially is a green light to do this. Um, and and people who are being honest on Facebook are actually being penalized as a result. I also think that another issue is targeting. Mm -hmm. That part of the problem and part of why it's so difficult to fact check these ads is that there are so many different versions of them produced for all of these micro audiences that okay. Facebook lets you target. And so I think that that kind of micro-targeting for political ads is fairly destructive mm -hmm. um, because it allows you to send a different message to, to every single different group. And so I think they should restrict the ability to micro-target uh, these kinds of ads. That makes a lot of sense. So I did speak with Brittany Kaiser, who was featured in The Great Hack and used to work for Cambridge Analytica. And she said something that was pretty chilling. I wanted to get your take on it. She said, the biggest threat to our democracy is not foreign, but domestic. Donald Trump spent over $600 million on his campaign and has been spending $1 million a day these days, some of which is going to disinformation. Would you agree with her assessment? I largely agree with it. I think that the the threat from the Trump campaign and the level of disinformation that's being spread by the Trump campaign is of far greater magnitude than we saw um, by different Russian 
operatives who were uh, operating online before 2016. So I think she's largely correct. I do think that there is a threat of foreign influence as well. There's the state threat that obviously we should look out for. It seems like Facebook's getting a little bit better at that and is willing to take those networks down. Um, but also the threat from people who are just trying to collect groups of angry Trump supporters and rile them up with true or false information because it's an easy way to make money. And I've seen some of that in my reporting as well. Can you can you explain a little bit about how Facebook is sort of the perfect storm for the Trump campaign? It's sort of optimized outrage. Yeah, I mean, if, if you think about the Trump rally, and a lot of that energy is reflected in the content that Trump produces on Facebook and the advertisements he produces on Facebook. It's really designed, a Trump rally and these Trump advertisements are really designed not to communicate a new policy proposal or communicate some even positive um, facts about what happened during the Trump administration. They're really designed to provoke an outrage and provoke a big emotional response. Mm -hmm. And Facebook's algorithm rewards things that provoke an emotional response. Anytime someone clicks like or dislike, um, they boost that content. And, and the same thing goes for ads. Um, okay. they, the ad gets boosted and shared or an ad can be shared organically as well. So they are able just by using their candidate and the natural message of their campaign and putting it on Facebook, it's going to do much better than say the message of Elizabeth Warren and the details of her agriculture plan exactly. or whatever she, she right. comes out with, or pretty much anyone uh, on the Democratic side who's focused on more substantive um, issues. And I think that's a, that's a big advantage. And it's essentially the perfect campaign, the perfect candidate, and the perfect message to really do well on Facebook, and they do do well on Facebook. So what's the answer? How, how do we as consumers of news on Facebook uh, combat this? I, I think there's two things. I think as an individual consumer, I would just be very skeptical of anything you read on Facebook. I wouldn't accept anything you read on Facebook. Hmm. I would look towards, uh, maybe you can look at Facebook, and if you go to us, if it links to a site that you recognize and trust, then that's okay. But if it's just something that's printed in a long text post or just an advertisement, I would dis disregard it. I think the major problems with Facebook are going to need to be resolved um, through collective action, uh, through government regulation. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that individual people have control over other than, you know, you have a say in democracy and you can there's candidates that are more willing to, to take on Facebook and there's candidates that are less willing to, and, mm -hmm. and you can make your voice heard that way. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Judd, for joining us on Oh My Pod. Uh, our listeners should go to popular.info, sign up for your newsletter and read your excellent content. Thanks so much. So Brittany had quite a warning for us, the threat being domestic, um, how much money Trump's spending. $600 million. Yeah. So Trump spent hundreds of millions of dollars in 2016. He's now spending 
a million dollars a day. So what is she saying? In order for the Democrats to, to be successful, we have to play the same game. How are we to counter that? That's an excellent question. I think the lesson is be more aware of the information that you're being fed. Fact check it yourself, right? And make sure that the information you're getting is from a, a trusted source, a respected source. We talk about integrity mm-hmm. and ethics. Yes, he doesn't subscribe to that. And so how do you fight a burning house without water? So we need to do them one better, right? We need to undermine what makes their tactics work. And one would like to think that truth wins. We need more transparency. Uh, the the uh, tech companies. We need it, but they're not going to give, uh, give us transparency. I think we also need to figure out how to undermine the disinformation by having conversations with our friends and family who are susceptible to that disinformation. I think there's a respectful way to change hearts and minds with the truth. You know, I have relatives who are rabid supporters of Trump. We had been going to Thanksgiving dinner there, but we have now as a policy not to talk about politics. So we can't do that. But these people uh, who have uh, been used by them and who have bought their product uh, 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 don't uh, believe in the, in the truth. They right. think it's our political position and it leads to unpleasantness and we can't have relationship with our own table. own relatives. No, it, it's a shame. I think that's a very common uh, phenomenon yes, around yes. the country. Yes, yes. Oh, it is. And actually, it's the opposite that we should be doing. We need to have these conversations. We need to have these conversations, but we can't have them because of the success of this nefarious activity. How do we deal with Mm -hmm. this? I I don't think there's an easy answer. I think what happened in 2008, which I hope might happen again in 2020, is that we had a candidate who lifted people up, right? And so the hope of the 2008 campaign – the, the, the lifting people up as opposed to making them fear and dividing them. So think about the marriage equality fight. I remember as a Californian then, I remember that night when we elected Barack Obama and oh, Prop 8 passed. Yeah, yeah. And the, the bittersweetness of that victory. And we were exhilarated when uh, Obama was winning and he won. And we also got the news of uh, Prop 8. We called it Prop 8 um, prevailing. But there was that ultimate of the summer of uh, 2015. Exactly. And we would not have had that without the loss in California, I don't think. I think that was a galvanizing moment. But that was a moment. And I think the Trump election has galvanized the United States so that we can win and defeat the forces of disinformation and lies. People need to wake up. Be wary of everything showing up in their feed that isn't from a reputable source. Precisely. And we need to understand the biggest threat to our democracy is right under our nose right here at home, sitting in the White House. This has been Oh My Pod 
We're going on a brief hiatus for the holidays, but we'll be back in the new year. Have a wonderful holiday season. George Takei's Oh My Pog is produced by Todd Beaton, Elizabeth Friedman, Evan Brechtel, Lorenzo Tioni, Jay Quo, and Tom Gavuto. Special thanks to Gotham Podcast Studios.